And a warning, this story includes graphic descriptions of violence and sexual assault. Good evening, and welcome to the holiday edition of Consumer Probe. Our subject tonight is unsafe toys for children. For instance, Live from New York, it's December 1976, and actress Candace Bergen is hosting Saturday Night Live's final episode of the year, two weeks before Christmas. So-called harmless playthings. A pretty Peggy ear-piercing set, Mr. Skin Grafter, General Tron secret police confession kit, and Doggy Dentist. And what about this innocent rubber doll, which you market under the name Johnny Switchblade? Press his head, and two sharp knives spring from his arms. Mr. Mainway, I'm afraid this is by no means a safe toy. Okay, I'm just, I'm just want to correct you on one thing here, okay? The episode introduced SNL's iconic Irwin Mainway character, a toy manufacturer played by Dan Aykroyd, in various forms over the next two decades. Well, we'd like to show you another one of Mr. Mainway's products. It retails for $1.98, and it's called Bag of Glass. <laughs> Mr. Mainway, this is simply a bag of jagged, dangerous glass bits. Yeah, right. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a glass. It's a broken glass. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it sells very well, as a matter of fact. You know. Bergen is now best known for playing broadcast journalist Murphy Brown. I, I don't understand. I mean, children could seriously cut themselves on any one of these pieces. Yeah, well, look. You know, a kid, the average kid, he picks up, you know, broken glass anywhere. The beach, the street, garbage cans, parking lots, all over the place in any big city. We're just packaging what the kids want. <laughs> the sketch hits all the right marks, skewering 1970s American commercial excesses, particularly around the holidays. Aykroyd's sleazy salesman dismisses each of the on-your-side TV journalist's points and raises absurd counterclaims about the dangers of children's wooden blocks or teddy bears, all while dismissing fears about his comically you know dangerous I mean? products. Oh, so you don't feel that this product is dangerous? No, come on, look. We put a label on every bag. It says, kid. Be careful, broken glass. <laughs> I mean, we sell a lot of products in the bag-o line. Like a bag of glass, a bag of nails, bag of bugs, bag of vipers, bag of sulfuric acid. <laughs> the episode's toy sketch was an instant hit, and Aykroyd went on to play variations of the character for two decades. The episode is considerably less well-known for a holiday musical sketch that's been described as the most tasteless bit in SNL history. NBC almost immediately pulled it from reruns. One night this July, Gary Gilmore killed a Utah service station attendant, and the next night he shot a 25-year-old student twice in the head. He was convicted of the second murder and sentenced to death. Here's Bergen again toward the end of the episode, standing in front of a glittering Christmas tree, back in broadcast TV mode. She's staring right at the camera, emotionlessly listing off the facts about a guy on Utah death row named Gary Gilmore. That same year, in a series of rulings, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed its 1972 ban on capital punishment. But executions weren't expected to immediately resume. Prisoners on death row still have rights to appeals. But Gilmore, convicted in several killings in Utah, was in a rush to die. Gilmore requested that the sentence be carried out by firing squad. Prison officials were flooded with calls from people volunteering to shoot Gilmore, a job which pays $125. Gilmore's lawyer is negotiating with publishers and motion picture studios for book and movie rights, and there has been a cry for public execution. Bergen holds up a copy of the New York Post. Its headline is two giant words, kill him. The audience seems to react as if they all know about this guy already. It's a late night comedy show, but Bergen's deadpan delivery of Gilmore's crimes, his decision not to pursue appeals, and the rising odds that state officials will actually follow through and shoot him to death are all very real. Bergen goes on. All three networks have asked permission to film the event, and if permission is not granted, then there's talk of filming the execution from a dirigible, helicopter, or hang glider. And so, it's in this spirit that Saturday night has prepared a very special Christmas song. The screen fades to a shot of the iconic Christmas tree outside 30 Rock. As a choir of three men and three women are decked out in Christmas sweaters and dusted with prop snow that's falling from somewhere above the camera line. Cast member Gilda Radner leads the choir through a medley of rewritten holiday songs. There's a little guy in Utah with a single Christmas wish For one special thing that can't be substituted 
trains, get toys, or get pet fish. All he really wants to get is executed. So let's kill Gary Gilmore for Christmas. Let's hang him from atop the Christmas tree. Let's give to him the only gift that money can buy. Put poison in his eggnog, let him drink it, watch him die. Todd didn't make it by Christmas, but they got Gilmore a few weeks later using bullets rather than the poison eggnog. The same episode of Saturday Night Live reran that week, but NBC replaced the Gilmore sketch. It was a very different time. Americans were discussing the death penalty, debating it. We knew the names of people on death rows. Comedians made jokes about them. Today, most Americans have never heard of Gary Gilmore, but we've all heard from him. Actually, The inspiration for this came from a man that was about to be executed for murder. Before the group of Utah shooters opened fire, a prison official asked Gilmore if he had any last words. He responded, let's do it. And his final words to the firing squad were, let's do it. And um, so so I I thought, well, probably I like the do it part of it. Dan Wyden is the co-founder of Wyden & Kennedy, an advertising firm that works closely with Nike. In 1988, the Swoosh Company was looking for a slogan to promote its mission of inspiring people to participate in sports. None of us really paid that much attention. We thought, yeah, that'd work. He says Gilmore's last words essentially became Nike's slogan. But discussion of the wildly successful ad campaign, at least its spree killer origins, aren't exactly encouraged at Nike HQ. Wyden discussed the origins of the slogan in the 2009 documentary Arts and Copy, along with former Nike marketing chief Liz Dolan. That was not the version that I heard when I arrived at Nike. I'm sure they didn't want anyone to really know that that was the genesis of the phrase. And um, I think what happened, and it was sort of like a lot of things in life, is sometimes it's the most inadvertent things that you don't really see. From WFIU Public Radio in Indiana, this is Rush to Kill, a podcast about the secretive Midwest facility where all federal executions take place, from the public media journalists who cover U.S. death row. I'm George Hale. Coming up on this final episode of our eight-part series, what the continued existence of the American death penalty is doing to the rest of us. 1,500-plus American executions since they shot Gilmore to death in Utah The machinery of death is putting its mark on our society as well as our judicial system, making it less transparent and less accountable to the public. Just say, uh, we're picking up Adam. Hi. Picking up Adam Pinsker. He's one of the reporters that served as a media witness. I'm just picking up one of the reporters that served as a media witness. I have both of my passes. It's looking like Christmas again, some 44 years after Gilmore's shooting death in Utah. We're all still doing this. We could also wait out here. It's a cold night in Terre Haute, Indiana. I'm trying to get U.S. Prison Bureau staff to let us approach the building where prison officials just dropped off my colleague Adam Pinsky. Yeah, we can wait out here and he can walk to the edge of the parking lot. But... He's left the execution chamber after, we presume, yet another federal execution. He's been doing it all year, since it was hot outside. They make us stay in the car. We all had media credentials, but for whatever reason, they're no longer good enough. And a warning, this story includes graphic descriptions of violence and sexual assault. The execution was of Orlando Hall, black man convicted by an all-white jury for a kidnapping and murder of a teenager. A federal jury in the Northern District of Texas sentenced him to death in 1996. Hall was among a group that arrived at the home of a man they thought had stolen their money. But only his 16-year-old sister, Lisa Renee, was home. Prosecutors say they kidnapped her, raped her, and drove her to a hotel in Arkansas. They thought they could pressure her brother into returning the money, but there was no money. Prosecutors said the group eventually placed a sheet over her head, beat her with a shovel, and buried her while she was still alive. Yes, mate. We're supposed to hand the um, pass back to the guard. This guy? Eventually, Adam emerges from the darkness. When he, the guy, uh, 
yep. and the, the pass on the dashboard. Tell the other guy told him the told me that have you handed to it's him. It's this chaotic um, scene every time, trying to figure out who needs what and who can go where. Um, we got to figure out how we're gonna do this. Do you, do you give me your pass? Various prison officials need to check various documents that grant varying levels of access to media. I already gave mine. Oh. You need to just hand that one into the. Tell the guy there that we load yeah. up the car and start racing around Terre Haute to round up other people we need to interview or to pick up. Um, what's that? This my recorder. Oh, oh, are you recording? Yeah, that's fine. And in the car, um. we do this debrief. Either Adam asking me or me asking Adam, depending on who's just done what. And it's got to be quick because the work day, or more often work night, only really starts after the government kills someone new. After several executions, we quickly learn that it's best not to wait to document exactly what happened. I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't experienced it myself, but the killings really do start to blend together in your mind. Hall, like, picked up his head. It bothered me. That freaked me out. And then his feet twitching. This all happened in the first, like, five minutes of the whole thing. Um... And um, he, his, his face, his lips went blue about 10 minutes into it. His fingers all turned white. Then we got to do these quick math equations, comparing the last guy to this one. Did their bodies react like they were um, supposed to? Did it um, take longer than it should have? So, it's all very rushed. Yeah, so he actually like said a bunch of uh, stuff. He did a prayer um, in um, Arabic. He... Um, have it all written down. He said, like, while the marshal was on the phone to the DOJ, he was talking. I thought they were going to cut his mic at that point. We've got to talk to our producer in Bloomington and the NPR newscasters in Washington, D.C. about what's just happened and what they want us to do next. And other stuff, like, you know, let our significant others know where we are. Um, thank you to everybody who's here, my loved ones, my family. We also go over the last for, words, however much was possible to record under these conditions. Um, Reporters get a pen and notepad. And, and like I said, when they started, the dude's like, inmate hall, you're convicted uh, in the what North uh, District of Texas for blah, 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 blah. And uh, would you like to make a final statement? He um, told his family, uh, you know, thank you for all the loved ones who are here today and my family are supporting me, my kids. And once that's all out of the way, if there's time... The weird stuff. He was looking, so you know, you know how that is, George. You got yeah. the two windows in there. So I was on the left side. I always kind of camp out there, but he was looking more toward the right. That's more direct, isn't it? Well, that's also more direct, and it's also closer to so where the people. the the witnesses would be, like non-media, which would I assume is family. It's also where the um the spiritual witness stands. Right, the spiritual person, and um, they actually had the sister of the victim was there today. Oh wow. Yeah. So um. Did he apologize or anything? Oh, he did say something. He was like, um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to seek forgiveness. People really want to know this, whether or not the guy they're about to kill made amends with other people killed by him. And usually, yes, at least if they aren't maintaining their own innocence. I have it written down, just dark yeah. in here. Then he said, thank you to all my, all my people who are here today, my loved ones, my family, my friends. And then he paused, and that's when they asked for the phone call to be made up to the DOJ. And then he starts talking over that. Usually they're quiet during that time. We have to explain very quickly how things went and the story we're going to try to put together right then and there. Almost none of this can be done in advance because while there's often plenty of downtime awaiting court rulings and ever-changing government plans, the reporters have no way to communicate these things to their colleagues. And then, of course, when it actually happens, they give you a pen and paper, enough to fulfill their transparency requirement, even though it's often very unclear. Sometimes even the people doing the executing get confused. Like minutes earlier in the execution chamber, when Adam saw Orlando Hall was still speaking at the point the government calls a direct line to the DOJ. And then he paused, and then the Bureau of Prisons guy looks at the marshal, and then he's like, Marshal, are there any impediments? He picks up the phone. He said something on the phone, but I was listening to Hall say another statement. He said, uh, I'm going to be okay. I, I love you all. I love my kids. And then the marshal's like, no impediments. And then... All the mics were cut. He gets on his radio and tells the guy to start the chemicals. He looked uneasy. The the guy that does the does all the bullshit, the DOJ, he looked like kind of looking like I didn't expect this. Like because they always expect it to go a certain way. When it's off script for them, they get nervous. Um, Whatever this is doing uh, to the mental health of the reporter, that's um, for another day. The movement, the the thing that really bothered me, that really freaked me out, was his him looking up, 
that happened within a minute. It was within a minute of the ex- of the chemicals hitting his system. Do you think it was a response to that? No, because I think he was really trying to look toward the um, family. I think he was a conscious thing. I think he probably knew I got only just a few seconds left here. Breathing was not as heavy. I, I he is the one I saw breathe the like the the heavy breathing. The movement just the that and the feet, the feet and the and the head movement really bothered me. And all of this we have to do while driving, usually to a Dollar General right outside the main entrance to the prison. That's where we might find people connected to whoever just got killed. And all of this rushing around is to try to mitigate the many barriers put in place to prevent journalists like Adam from talking to people connected to the person being executed. People on the government side are allowed on the grounds. They issue press releases, and if they want, the feds bring them to us. So all that is handled in a careful, calm way. But if we want to hear from someone connected to, say, Orlando Hall... It's Dollar General. And right now, we're on our way to meet Orlando Hall's spiritual advisor, who's just inside the execution chamber, but isn't allowed anywhere near it now. If it were up to the U.S. government, even all of this would be impossible, because before the executions even began, authorities in Indiana imposed an almost total blockade of the prison, not to keep prisoners inside, but to keep the rest of us out. They tried to prevent the public from even approaching the general area and shut down anti-death penalty protests. Adam's been doing this again and again, all year long, and it's a lot. Oh my god. You all right, buddy? You're doing the next two. So before they lifted that plan, we held the protest at a car lot, like right on the corner of the road that intersects with the prison and the main highway in Terre Haute, which would be about two miles away from the prison. Ashley Eve was working as a public defender in Indianapolis when she got word the Trump administration planned to resume executions. It was absolutely crazy. And I mean, it was I mean, there was just no real way to there was no way to have like any sort of real vigil or presence. She's also a vocal opponent of the death penalty and as a native Hoosier felt like the Trump administration started a fight on her turf. So she and other abolitionists started making plans to challenge the executions if they happened. I think what death penalty action was trying to do was create again and help organize the individuals in Terre Haute and in this community that is being affected the most by these executions. Because similar to how Texas is the ex- or Huntsville, Texas is the execution capital of Texas or maybe the country. In a way, Terre Haute is now becoming an execution capital. It's being known as where the most powerful country in the world puts to death its citizens. And as Eve and the others soon learned, the federal government intended to perform the executions about as far from public view as possible. Well, so they were first originally planning to begin executions in December of 2019. And there were three set for the week ending in September, or December 13th which of course I remember because that was Taylor Swift's birthday. Ashley Eve is also a fanatic Swifty, and that comes up a lot. None of us expected them to go forward during a pandemic. I mean, when you look at state executions or just executions in general, stays happen most of the time. Um, for any administration to be able to go 13-0, and 0, that is just insane. That doesn't happen with executions, with state executions in general. Even the others traveled to Terre Haute and started setting up. So we were all expecting a stay. But then when it came and all of a sudden it was the morning for Daniel Lee, I mean, we, we planned our vigils. There were other organizations that had been involved that had vigils planned, but we were blocked. The collection of groups faced the odd prospect of organizing protests that virtually nobody would ever see because the Indiana State Police was totally shutting down traffic all around the prison. There wouldn't even be cars driving by. They'd just be screaming into the void. They decided that while it wasn't ideal, they'd set up beyond the barricades and on the side of the highway. But the spot was dangerous and loud and still far from the prison. We weren't even allowed to get within two miles of the prison. So we were basically forced to protest on the side of a highway. It turns out that the U.S. Prison Bureau's demonstration area, while technically on the property of the federal complex, was so far from any actual building that nobody was likely to even know they were there. Plus, the only road that passed it was blocked off by the Indiana State Police. More terms eventually came out. The Prison Bureau wasn't going to let people bring megaphones or stereos or anything to amplify their voices. No phones, either. Protesters would have to arrive hours earlier at an off-site location. They'd be bused to the area and confined to the little square marked off with construction ribbon. 
And it was like after that, I remember just driving back and forth. And I just remember saying, I think that them blocking us this far from the the prison, I'm like 99% sure that that's illegal. It's a violation of our First Amendment. We pose no threat. It's a public road. Anyway. Fast forward to the execution of Orlando Hall several months later and our meetups with protesters and people connected to those being executed. If the federal government had its way, there'd be no coverage of the other side, only from the government's official statements and people they occasionally presented to us. Hey. Hey, how are you doing? At some point before or after each execution, we'd almost always end up here, the parking lot of a lonely Dollar General store just outside the main entrance to the Terre Haute prison. The Dollar General became a de facto event space for the masses that arrived each time the government set a new date. Pretty much every category of person involved in executions, aside from those actually doing the executing, were here. Anti-death penalty protesters, journalists like me. Protesters would stand along the highway holding anti-death penalty signs. And TV reporters, holding microphones emblazoned with their station's logos, transmitted updates to anchors in their studios via satellite trucks. Members of clergy hold group prayers for all involved. And sometimes, loved ones of the person being executed stop by for encouragement on what's almost certainly the worst day of their lives. They're not allowed on the prison grounds aside from during the actual execution, assuming their loved one granted approval and that the loved one actually wanted to watch. Otherwise, they'd end up with the rest of us at Dollar General, waiting for news and processing news. By the way, who do you think that is? That that could be, that's just... That's Department of Justice. That's just some Bureau of Prisons people. It could be the bureaucrats that were in there. I don't know. Um, There's another one, too. There's another one. Oh, there's a lot of vans, like multiple vans. Following an execution, we'd sometimes sit outside the Dollar General site and watch the prison seem to empty out as members of the execution team or people involved in security and support roles drove in a straight line through the exit before turning every which way to return to their hotels or homes. I doubt it. I think the family got out of there right after we did. It's been about 15, 20 minutes. It could be the staff. Um, so oh, is that a fucking hearse? No, it's not a hearse. Never mind. Watching them file out of the facility oh. before blending back into the real world with the rest of us is as close as we ever got. My family and I are, are very relieved that this is over. The Dollar General is also where journalists exchange information with one another. Here's Intercept reporter Liliana Segura sharing a written statement from the family of Lisa Renee, the victim in Hall's case. We have been dealing with this for 26 years, and now we're having to relive the tragic nightmare that our beloved Lisa went through. Ending this painful process will be a major goal for our family. This is only the end of the legal aftermath. The execution of Orlando Hall will never stop the suffering we continue to endure. Please pray for our family as well as his. Pearl Renee. I love that. That is sweet, actually. That's the sister because the mom, I think, has been deceived. Although they'd also be welcome here, the friends and relatives of crime victims rarely show up. The government keeps them busy. They provide food, hotels, transportation, and briefings with media, at least with the half a dozen or so journalists selected weeks in advance and only in areas inaccessible to the rest of the media in public. So the lawsuit filed by death penalty action in the Indiana ACLU didn't just remove an inconvenience. It protected a public space that facilitated interactions between a bunch of groups that don't normally cross paths and almost certainly resulted in media coverage that ended up being far more critical of the execution spree than if the federal government succeeded in keeping the area off limits to the public. Yep. Oh, great. He was a spiritual advisor to Anyway, tonight at the Dollar General, we're meeting Yusuf Noor, who served as a spiritual advisor for Orlando Hall. The spiritual advisor is actually inside the room when the drugs start flowing. The media witnesses are also right there, but there's glass between us and the group standing next to the person being executed. An audio feed is turned on only temporarily. It's off for most of the process. But the spiritual advisors are within the same area as the executioners. The executioners don't talk to media, meaning the spiritual advisor is typically the most direct available source after an execution. Like a vehicle light or something? Yes. Actually, if you just have something turned around shining this way... Yeah, I don't want to blind him, though. Paul's execution happened late, and the Dollar General was already closed for the night when we arrived. But Yusuf let us set up a last-minute press conference of sorts, using the lights from someone's truck. Oh, perfect. Perfect. After the execution, he was working with Hall's family and the prison staff to figure out the next steps for transporting his body back to Texas. I was hoping, I don't know why I was hoping, but I was hoping that something would 
Uh, so um, I, I, I don't know. They, they, they misled me about the funeral home. He described how he got dragged into this whole thing. He's not even a leader at his mosque. It's called Islamic Center of Bloomington. And what's your role? I've heard of that. I am just, uh, I, I was volunteered, you know, it's just, <laughs> I do volunteer thing. things, yeah. It's just, I'm a professor. Yeah. It's just, I was just Are you a professor at IU? Yeah. yeah. What yeah. do you teach? I, was, I teach business classes. Far from Kelly spirituality. Yeah. <laughs> far from spirituality, as far as you can get from spirituality. <laughs> a lot of times, the people who fill these roles aren't priests or rabbis or imams. Sometimes they're just the one person who is willing to do it. First of all, how long have you been counseling uh, Mr. Hall for? I, I, I found out uh, uh, from uh, Bill mm-hmm. only, what about, a month ago? A month ago, I think. Yeah. About a month ago, uh, he needed a Muslim uh, spiritual counselor, and uh, the community in Bloomington is mostly student community, and they... Um, Nobody was uh, willing to do it, so I I decided to do it. The presence of the spiritual advisor means that no matter what, the person being executed can see and speak to at least one person they trust. Staff on death rows everywhere seem to grasp the importance of the role. Even family members and defense attorneys aren't granted the same direct access to the process. So after every execution, journalists tried to find the spiritual advisor to clarify what exactly went on behind the scenes. What was, what was the question? Um, he gave a prayer in uh, Arabic, and do you know what he was saying? Uh, there were, he, he did, uh, in a, when, when was the, the which when prayer? The, the guy asked him to make a final statement, he said oh, it in Arabic, right before he started saying stuff in English. He, he, he did the, uh, what's called in Islam, shahada, which is the testimony, yeah. testifying that there's only one God, and that Muhammad is his messenger. He was repeating that. Uh, uh, as a statement, and uh, and then he started reciting the uh, the first chapter of the Quran in Arabic again. Wonderful, wonderful guy. I mean, just wonderful person. And every time I look at him, and I I couldn't avoid the thought crossing my mind: they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. This beautiful human being, and they're going to kill him. What do they get out of it? I don't understand. Why do they, what do they get out of it? You, it was hard for me to watch, and I didn't know Orlando. You knew him, and you were closer to him in physically witnessing this. Was that difficult for you? It, it was extremely difficult. I, I never really thought that it would affect me the way it affected me. I don't know why I thought it wouldn't affect me, you know. I don't know, it's just... It, it really gets to you. It's just, it's not that, uh, it's not that, uh, come to think of it, I don't think that I ever, I was, I, I was not beside somebody who was dying. I, I have seen dead bodies, but I don't think I've ever was at a, uh, the deathbed. It's, it was the first experience for me, and, uh, and it's, it, it's, it's, And it's a delicate dance because in almost every case, the person we're looking for is experiencing extreme emotional distress. They've just witnessed someone being killed, first of all, but also someone they cared about, someone they tried to help in whatever small way they could. And since federal executions are so rare, the spiritual advisor almost always hasn't done anything like this before. uh, As part of the arguments about the protocols that that are, sorry, the uh, precautions that they're taking to prevent the COVID spread. And uh, the ACLU lawyers didn't believe them. I can testify that they were those two guys were not wearing masks. The room was, uh, I don't think that the room was bigger than uh, maybe, let's see, 10, 10 by 10 maximum. The question of the prison's adherence to COVID-19 protocols was very much on our minds at the time. Noor was just the latest person to observe prison staffers flagrantly ignoring the most basic safety measures, such as wearing a mask during long periods confined in small rooms with poor air circulation. Only a handful of the anonymous prison staff put on masks at all. Some left them hanging from one ear or took them off and on for different parts of the execution. And I, uh, and in that room, it was me, uh, Orlando, 
those two guys who were not wearing masks and this big guy who was standing beside me, I don't know what his function is, uh, who was wearing a mask, but he's part of the prison, I think. Noor tested positive for COVID-19 a week or so after participating in Orlando Hall's execution, which wasn't surprising. Experts believe some of the executions turned into super spreader events. Multiple prisoners died of COVID-19 during the same Trump executions. One died 48 hours before the first of three executions in quick succession, the final three executions before Biden took office. The next February, we learned that U.S. agents were typing up sanitized reports of each execution, omitting unexpected bodily reactions that could indicate the execution might not be going according to plan. In sworn testimony, members of the U.S. execution team described reactions using language usually reserved for the living, describing the dying process like dozing off, the unnatural torso movement, possibly a sign of pulmonary edema when fluid pours into the lungs, goes unmentioned, or it's written off as natural. The first execution I witnessed of William LaCroix is described as deep, comfortable sleep. I watched the same thing, and afterwards, I reported uncontrollable heaving and jerky movements. So, uh, Corey Johnson, uh, when there were three executions left in, uh, in, in, in Trump Barr's uh, killing spree, I asked my lawyer friend again that I've worked with for so many years to find out if the last three had ministers. Reverend Bill Breeden served as spiritual advisor for Corey Johnson, an intellectually disabled black man convicted in several drug-related murders in Virginia. It was 29 years without a visitor in solitary, and I, I expected to find a guy eating flies or something, you know, but I caught, talked to his lawyer, and he said he's one of the most decent men you ever met in your life. Uh, amazing guy. When he was... Uh, when he was sentenced to death as a 19-year-old gang member, he killed seven people in a gang war. And as I told him when I first met him, you should have gone to Iraq and killed seven civilians. We'd have got you a medal. <laughs> but you killed the wrong people. And uh, he was mentally impaired. Not mentally impaired. He was uh, developmentally impaired in terms he couldn't read or write. Never did learn to read or write. And I had to read anything I took over to him. I had to read for him, and I had to write things for him. I wrote his final words for him, but he, uh, but uh, he was just a, really one of the most decent men I've ever known. All the other guys on the road called him the Gentle Giant. Uh, everyone I've talked to about him while he was on death row, he was, uh, they'd never heard him raise his voice against anybody. Yeah. I called his lawyer a month or two ago because I'm writing about about him and stuff, and uh, he said, I said, I want to know what his record is in prison. In 29 years, he'd never had a single write-up. I don't know any prisoner. I don't, it's, I don't see how that's possible, you know. He just went inside himself and found a human being, and uh, he was an amazing guy. I, I really was honored to be, uh, be his minister. And, uh, and you know, revisiting it is a, is a painful thing. I, I don't, that's the worst 30 minutes I've ever had in my life. Anyway. I was with Reverend Breeden on the night of Johnson's execution, but media are behind glass, and the prison staff seem to only turn on a microphone inside the death chamber during very specific moments, like announcing the time of death. Uh, so, and then the other thing, too, I remember you saying later is that Corey had spoken during the execution after the microphone was cut off, if you recall any of that. According to Reverend Breeden, Corey told him something was wrong. Uh, he said his uh, hands were burning, and his, he, he was, he felt like he was on fire. He said he felt like he was on fire. And his hands in particular? Seems, I, I believe that's true. I, you know, it, it's been a while, and I can't uh, say absolutely that it was his hands. What is that? Oh, can I maybe just repeat that part? Breeden told Johnson's attorneys immediately, and they included his statements and filings related to a lethal injection challenge. A BOP attorney named Rick Winner responded that no one in an adjacent room heard Johnson say these things. I said, I believe to... Uh, Corey, uh, right after the execution began, right once they started uh, the injections, that he said his mouth was burning. His mouth and hands were burning, yeah. I believe that's what he said. Government lawyers pushed back against media accounts throughout the execution spree, raising doubts about what we saw in person as judges contemplated intervening. We didn't know it at the time, but Johnson consented to an autopsy. We later obtained records showing the results. The damage to his body was catastrophic. Um, 
So then, yeah, so the autopsy, which we were talking about, like, showed signs of pulmonary edema like they would expect. Um, and um, they also found, like, that it had come out, like, sorry to speak so correctly about someone you know, but, like, it had come up sort of in his throat and mouth, maybe, too. Um, so it's interesting that you say his mouth. Yeah, it was his mouth. Uh, I'm, I'm pausing for that. According to Reverend Breeden, Johnson specifically mentioned his mouth burning, the autopsy results showed that substances produced by the pulmonary edema condition were pushed up his esophagus and into his neck and mouth. Because the Bureau of Prisons does not conduct autopsies, as a matter of course. Megan McCracken is a federal defender and expert on all things lethal injection. She's behind some of the biggest challenges to the procedure. I mean, to my knowledge, um, only two of the federal prisoners executed in 2020 and 2021 had autopsies. Both showed severe pulmonary edema. Um, and so it's not a surprise. But it's very distressing. And um, for Corey Johnson, it was characterized as severe pulmonary edema. Like you said, fluid all the way up the airway into the mouth um, and a lot of froth and fluid. Um, heavy lungs, so the lungs filled with fluid, uh, much heavier than you know, average lung weights after death. Um, and so that confirms what the prisoners were saying in the litigation that this is happening. I mean, we know it is. That's not a question. Those pentobarbital. And there again, uh, that person had significant pulmonary edema. In Atlanta, I asked anesthesiologist and pentobarbital expert Joel Zivit of Emory University Hospital to review Johnson's autopsy record. Well, I mean, it couldn't have been better. It could only have been worse. Zivit noticed that Johnson's lungs were already in trouble. So not only did he have severe pulmonary edema with fluid filling up, you know, and pouring out of his mouth. He also had COVID. So he was actually positive with COVID. In fact, the last two executions that the federal government performed, in both of those cases, both of those inmates, they both tested positive for the coronavirus, both had COVID. So now you've taken someone who's got lung injury already from COVID, and you've now executed him with pentobarbital, which could only one could only imagine would have made the execution even worse. You know, if it couldn't be any worse than it already is, but now you've taken someone who has damaged lungs and you've exposed them to pentobarbital, and now the pulmonary edema, you know, was striking in, in, in uh, Corey Johnson's um, uh, autopsy. Johnson's autopsy was the second of two we obtained, the other of Wesley Perkey, also showed signs of pulmonary edema, meaning that in the only two cases in which we can know for sure, the executed person didn't drift off. Uh, the whole thing felt really lawless. Lee Kowarski is an expert on the death penalty and habeas corpus. He's on faculty at the University of Texas at Austin's Law School. The Supreme Court has well-established procedure for uh, and standards for considering um, emergency applications to vacate lower court relief. Um, and it abandoned all of those or most of those. And it was clearly being driven by its awareness that Joe Biden would be sworn in on uh, January 20th, uh, 2021. And at that point, you know, in all likelihood, the uh, attempt to execute these people would cease. Kowarski studied the Trump executions in depth. He authored a paper for the Texas Law Review going through each execution case by case, reviewing lower court challenges that would have prevented many of the executions from going forward. He concludes that throughout the process, U.S. Supreme Court justices appeared fixated on an unspoken deadline, Joe Biden's uh, inauguration day. For precisely the same reason it all felt lawless, it seems really unlikely that it predicts anything uh, meaningful on like a granular legal level 
um, about the way the federal death penalty is implemented. I think it says important things about how the court is going to react on a very visceral level to developments in the death penalty space. And he says it's remarkable just how many decisions were made without thought-out opinions. The courts had a real opportunity to set precedents and answer fundamental questions about the federal death penalty in particular, but that didn't happen. It's a shame that the court wanted these executions to go off so badly that they didn't use the cases as vehicles to carefully spell out what it is that the federal law means, particularly the parity provision. The parity provision is an example of one of the many little names Kowarski has given the federal death penalty specific legal issues. Is that part of the U.S. code that says the manner of executing someone at the federal level needs to track with the method used by the state where the federal sentence is imposed? That parity provision was originally in the United States Code in the 1930s. Before that time, I think hanging was the prescribed method of execution. Um, And the operation of that provision, which was brought back in, I think, 1994, um, uh, now works as follows, right? Because all of the states, or virtually all of the states, use lethal injection, Although the United States Code does not provide that federal executions proceed by lethal injection, by operation of the parity provision, that's effectively what it means because it makes the parity provision mirror whatever happens uh, in the states. Um, now, nobody's sure about the level of granularity at which the federal execution method has to mimic state execution methods. This was the question that came up ahead of the execution of Daniel Lee, the first to die during the Trump execution spree. In other words, does it just have to be lethal injection generally? Does it have to be the same drugs? Does it have to be the same drugs in the same sequence? Does it have to be the same drugs in the same sequence with the same notice and the same rules about spiritual advisors and witnesses and so forth. But what happens if the state in question doesn't have the death penalty, such as Maryland, where Higgs was sentenced to death? Uh, The Dustin Higgs execution was a similar but different issue. Uh, What happened in the Higgs execution was there's a designation provision. Designation provision is another Kowarski term to help us get through all this. He uses it to describe what the feds are supposed to do if a federal jury convicts someone and sentences them to death in a state that doesn't have the death penalty. It turns out that at least on this question, the authors did think of that. Because obviously you can't uh, have a parity provision that says, okay, federal government do the death penalty like the state in which the sentencing court sits when the sentencing court sits in a state that doesn't have the death penalty anymore. So it's got this fallback provision which says in um, that sort of scenario, the In the judgment um, imposing the death sentence, the federal court can designate some other state for the purposes of the parity provision. Here's the problem with that, in Higgs' case in particular. When the jury sentenced him to death, Maryland did have the death penalty. Maryland is a death penalty state, right? So the judgment, you know, is written in a way that indicates that the federal death penalty is to be imposed the way Maryland opposes it. But in the years he's been waiting for a possible execution date, lawmakers in Maryland got rid of it. The judge never had a reason to choose a different state's method and apply it to Higgs' case. Maryland's method was the one. Well, the problem is that um, Maryland doesn't have a death penalty by the time you get to Higgs' execution, so the manner of execution has to be fixed by reference to some other state. Um, That requires amending the judgment. Um, And the uh, United States was sort of asleep at the switch, and they realized that it required amending the judgment in some way really late in the game. The government realizes it might have screwed up and asks the federal court to amend the Higgs death sentence to use another state's method. Um, So they move to amend the judgment and then uh, they set the execution date for Higgs, I believe, while that motion to amend the judgment was still pending. Uh, And the district court said, wait, I, I can't do that. I can't just go in and amend the judgment. I don't have authority to do that. Um, and uh, the case goes up uh, to the circuit court. And before the circuit court can even do anything, the Supreme Court does this absolutely unprecedented thing where it agrees to take review before judgment of the appeals court, vacates the district court order, 
and instructs the district court uh, to designate some other state for the purposes of the parity provision so the execution can go forward as scheduled. The Supreme Court essentially tells the government to kill Higgs even before the court below it has a chance to rule on this pretty big question. And it simply chooses not to answer the question. It just says to kill Dustin Higgs. On what grounds? We don't really know. Nobody really knows because the Supreme Court didn't really offer a meaningful opinion about what the authority to designate after the judgment looks like. They just told the district court to do it. Um, you know, and this goes to some of the problems with decided deciding all these cases uh, on really hurry, hurried timelines with slapdash orders is that nobody actually knows what the rules are going forward. Right. Nobody will know till the next time there's, you know, a, a, an aberrational volley of executions in the twilight of some Republican presidency. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I say like, look, it's, it's just impossible to predict what this means because by the time that scenario materializes again, we might be operating in an entirely different legal environment. This is an extreme example, perhaps the most extreme and certainly the most unusual during this period of the Supreme Court opting not to explain its decisions, just issuing them unilaterally and leaving future litigators in the dark about what will or won't fly next time. Because they don't know why the court lets certain things happen this time. But that's not the only reason you don't want to make a habit of this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's two things, right? There's the degree to which orderly consideration actually facilitates good results. And second, there's the appearance of orderly consideration, promoting the legitimacy of the judicial process. And both of those things get compromised pretty severely when you see things like this. It worked. Experts on the U.S. Supreme Court and its more recent behavior say the use of emergency procedures are on the rise. Uh, sure. So Steve Vladek, V-L-A-D-E-C-K. Um, I am the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law. I met Steve Vladek during a federal judges conference in Nashville, where he was delivering a lecture on consequential Supreme Court cases. Um, I study and write about the Supreme Court, the federal courts, constitutional law, um, and every once in a while, military justice and national security. A lot seemed to be going over even these folks' heads, and certainly mine. We set up a couple weeks later to compare notes on the recent executions. Um, you know, there were 13, right, executions by the Trump administration in the last seven months of the administration. Seven of those um, required the Supreme Court to undo lower court orders that had blocked the executions. That's unusual. I mean, it's not unheard of for the court to, you know, vacate a lower court stay of execution, but that many in that short order is. Um, the last of the cases, the Higgs case, the procedural move the Supreme Court made by granting cert before judgment and summarily resolving the dispute over which state's execution protocol would be followed. And he agrees with Kowarski that the Higgs decision really has no equal. Um, when the Fourth Circuit was set to hear argument on that question, you know, a week later, that was, so far as I can tell, George, the first time the court had ever done that, like a summary merits decision on a cert before judgment grant. Um, you know, the sort of the first two decisions in July of 2020 in Lee and Perky, um, where the court, you know, had these sort of weird 5-4 rulings that didn't really decide anything. Um, kind of odd for the court to be saying, we're going to let this execution go forward without resolving the merits of the prisoner's you know, unexhausted, uh, uh, sort of un, 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 uh, defaulted claims. Um, so, you know, I, I think in, in one respect, the court's behavior was consistent with its sort of post-2017 behavior on the shadow docket. But even in the context of its historical behavior in death penalty cases, I think it was pretty extreme. In this phenomenon in which the court is using emergency procedures to decide cases that really aren't emergencies, at least they don't have to be. Um, so I, I think there were elements of the Supreme Court's role that were unusual by almost any historical assessment. I think there were some respects in which it was also typical of the court's more recent behavior on the shadow docket. Vladek didn't coin the term, but he's spent years researching the court's use of emergency procedures to resolve cases that aren't really emergencies. He's also the author of a book by the same name that he hopes will break down this issue for those of us who didn't go to law school. So first of all, what is the shadow docket? Yeah. Um, so the shadow docket is just, it's a term for something that's been around forever. I mean, the shadow docket is that part of the Supreme Court's caseload that isn't the merits docket, that isn't those fancy 
cases that get argued before the court and then get these long, lengthy signed decisions in May and June. It really is the death penalty that is the, the modern origins of what we think of as the contemporary shadow docket um, in the 1970s and 80s in response to the reinstitution of the death penalty in 1976. There's an explosion in last minute emergency litigation in death cases, um, right? There's an explosion of sort of claims that are only considered um, once an execution date has been set um, and where the only way to pause the execution is to issue some kind of emergency relief. Um, and so, you know, the what, what we think of as the shadow docket today really does have its origins, at least from a pattern and practice perspective in the late 70s and early 80s death penalty cases. Um, and so in one sense, what happened with the Trump cases was things coming full circle, um, was you know a sort of a new pattern of behavior by the court that until really the mid 2000s had been limited to the death penalty context. Um, it had expanded into other areas during the Trump administration. We saw a ton of cases about federal policies resolved through these unsigned, unexplained orders and then they came back to the death penalty um, in the in the Trump execution cases. And I think what's what's interesting and to me, I think problematic about this is by norm and by tradition, when the court hands down an order as opposed to a, a fully fleshed out decision in an argued case, the orders are typically unsigned and unexplained. Um, and so, you know, in most contexts, George, we don't care, right? If the court um, denies cert. We understand that that's not something that's going to explain. If the court gives a party more time to file a brief, no one's really waiting around trying to figure out why. Um, the, the issue that first surfaced in the death penalty cases, but has become a much more systemic problem is when the court is doing much more than that um, through these orders, when the court is either allowing nationwide federal policies to go back into effect or blocking statewide policies, or as in some of the Trump execution cases, um, you know, vacating a stay or an injunction that a lower court had issued. It's weird for the court to not explain itself. It's weird in that context to have no rationale telling us what was wrong with what the status quo was before it reached the Supreme Court. And that's the pattern that really came to light in the Trump execution cases. You know, 13 decisions, only one of which was accompanied by an opinion of the court. Um, you know, maybe there's a more benign explanation for that pattern, but the court's not giving it to us. And, and I think the third piece of this, and this is sort of where everything comes full circle, you know, the justices themselves have long insisted that what makes the court legitimate is its ability to provide principled justifications for its decision making. Um, right? Amy Coney Barrett gave a speech to the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in April of this year, where she said, you know, listen, don't just listen to the media when they call us hacks. Read our opinions, uh, right? Read it for yourself. Decide not if you agree with us, but if you agree that we're at least trying to apply legal principles. Well, in most of these cases, there's no decision to read. Um, so how are we supposed to, you know, figure out the principles if there are no principles? Um, and so historically, no one seemed to mind any of this because, these cases were few and far between because maybe they affected one death row inmate at a time. Um, but as we're seeing more wide scale effects from these decisions, um, I think there's more, and I think more understandable public concern that the court has more of an obligation to sort of explain itself, to, to give these cases more plenary consideration um, and to really, you know, take seriously the charge that these orders are, as Justice Kagan put it um, last September, um, increasingly unprincipled and impossible to defend. Why do we want it? What do we want? In Terre Haute, protesters outside the Dollar General tried to block media witness vans from entering the prison grounds. The drivers ended up taking a different route, and the execution went forward. Abe Bonowitz from Death Penalty Action unrolled yellow tape at the gates to the prison complex. It's dark and cold. Those of us on the outside assume the execution of Dustin Higgs is going on inside. Bonowitz says, we're declaring this the scene of 13 crimes. We're declaring it a crime scene. 
While all this went on outside, Adam was observing just one more federal execution. I think I put 107. Looks to his right at 1 a.m. His left it would be. I didn't put a timestamp down for when. I know his eyes closed at 103, and they opened back up at like 117 slightly, and they became more and more open. Some of them kept closed for a long time. It just um. I don't think he. I think it was just death. I think maybe just lost muscles. I was. So he. So he. He's a. His eyes were open. He was. He looked like very conscious, very aware. Two minutes in. I mean, I'd never seen that really. A lot of them just start reacting immediately. Now maybe we no maybe. He closed and they slightly reopened. Several minutes in, at one ten. Um, you know the waiting part. I mean, you're sitting there, you're waiting there outside in the van, and you know at that very moment they're putting needles in him and looking for. So you know. So then, like, well, you know, I've done this six times, but like six, I can't remember, fucking seven times, I guess. How many have you done? Five. Seven or seven. So, um, right, but um, it's just the, the weak, like, I, you know, I should be used to, no one's used to it, but it shouldn't be, you know, but it's just really, it's, yeah. it's not as bad as the first time, but it's still like, just, um, yeah, like if they just driven us right there with no, you know, no way, as soon as you left security, then it would be different, but, um, we were making small talk like you always do, and then we just stopped talking because there's something to talk about it. It's not like you have your phone to play with or low, you, know, you can't tweet, so you're alone in your thoughts, you know. Let me just send one of these out and we can go. My name, I do not care to say it. Right after the execution, the prison staff let this man into the building to talk to the reporters. We never found out his name. He was presumably related to one of the three women. When I say this, life is filled with decisions. From the first breath in our life to our very last breath in our life, we are filled with decisions. Decisions to do right and decisions to do wrong. On that drastic day, approximately 25 years ago, a decision was made by Dustin Higgs to end three beautiful young ladies' lives. That decision would be hurtful to each family member. That decision caused their physical bodies to end. But I stand here being thankful and grateful that there was also another decision. Mr. Higgs had the opportunity to not cause that decision of death. With that, there is a final decision, which will be decision regarding his soul. It is my prayer that from the breath that he received while here on planet Earth, that he made the right decision to ask Jesus Christ to come into his life 
and that he repent of the decisions that he made. That's my decision. Thank you very much. Rush to Kill is produced by Sarah Whitmire and me, George Hale. Clayton Baumgarth mixed this episode with help from Joe Wren. Wei Wong, Kayan Tara, and Kathy Knapp contributed reporting. Kaylee Muneer and Martha Abraham provided research. The Rush to Kill team is grateful for considerable support from NPR, especially NPR Content Development and the NPR Investigations Desk. We're especially grateful to Lauren Gonzalez, Adelina Lanciones, and Arjun Hutchins, and to Eva Tesfai, Meg Anderson, and Graham Smith. More information about the project is available at wfiu.org slash rush to kill. <laughs>